Good morning, beloved in the Lord. It was so good, at least for me, to hear the Hagemeyer family up here this morning. Didn't they sound great? Yeah. I had the privilege of uh, being in another church with them some years ago and listening to them sing, so it's like, we, you know, we got the band back together, I guess, so... Years ago, when Beth and I lived in Las Vegas, uh, we got to participate in the Billy Graham crusade twice. He came there, first time he ever did any place, two years in a row. And while we were rehearsing, Billy Graham visited. And to be honest, it was like, is that God walking in here? That's what he looked like. And he came just to give us a word of encouragement. And he said, uh, my philosophy is if the choir does their job correctly... All I'll do is get up and give an invitation. So that's all I have for today. <laughs> it was wonderful worship. Um, I really enjoyed that. Something else I enjoy is watching action movies. Uh, if no one's going to get shot or killed, I'm not interested in seeing that's a chick movie to me, but that's how I am. But there's something about the formula where the action hero goes into a situation that seems hopeless and somehow finds a way out. I particularly like the action hero who prefers a real fight, who gets into the pit of evil to save or defend those who are helpless. I like the movie The Equalizer with Denzel Washington. I don't know if you've seen that or not. He plays a guy named Robert McCall, a retired CIA agent who also works at, obviously, what is a Home Depot. And he can't stand the impact evil is having on his community. So he goes after the bad guys, and he enters their office to offer to buy a young girl's freedom from their abuse. He is alone in a room with five of the toughest, tattooed, gun-wielding, knife-wielding men you can imagine. And they laugh at him, and they dismiss him. And so he goes to the door, appearing to leave. But then he locks the door, and he turns around, and he begins to calm his heart, and he begins to count. If you want to hear what happens next, you have to stay through the end of the sermon. We're continuing today looking at Mark, and today we're going to be in Mark 6, 14 through 30, if you want to find that in your Bibles. It begins, King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets from long ago. And when Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a judge against him, a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. 
although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. The, God, the, God, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege and opportunity we have to once again hear your word and to delve into it. We present ourselves to you for healing. We present ourselves to you now to gain knowledge and understanding and wisdom. And I pray that you would look past the sins of the speaker, for they are many. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in this passage, we really have two contexts. The context of Mark itself, the first five chapters, and the broader historical context of the Herods. So let's start with Mark. Just using Mark as our context, we're actually watching Jesus enter the office of the bad guys. <laughs> going into battle. It's similar to how a SEAL team operates. They come in under the radar and they move with speed and focus. So put on your seatbelts because we're going to go through this action film here. Jesus first casts out an unclean demon, then he heals a woman of fever, then he heals a leper. And he sternly tell him, tells him, do not tell anyone. Don't let the enemy know I'm here. And he moves on. And he heals a paralytic in front of the authorities and word spreads, which is exactly what Jesus did not want yet. It's like a hostage being rescued and start shouting, Hey, everyone, my rescue is here. Isn't this great? I'm like, shh, be quiet. Then there's the man with the shriveled hand that he heals, and he picks up pace, and the word spreads because he starts healing many. He starts teaching the crowds of people how to escape from their confinement, many realizing they didn't even know they were in prison. The enemy sees a chance to wipe them out and tries their counteroffensive move, and sends a storm, because Jesus is going from the land to the sea, just like the seals. And a storm shows up, and his disciples are frightened, and Jesus gets a bit frustrated with them. They wonder why he isn't concerned about the storm. What they would soon learn is that even though the enemy has sent a storm, with Jesus in the boat, there's no way your boat can sink. That's why he wasn't concerned. So what he does is he shows his recruits how to calm the storm with just a word. Then he casts out a legion of demons from a man into a herd of pigs, followed by healing of a woman from years of pain, and then brings a little girl back to life. The enemy is getting quite worried. They try a different tact. Jesus ends up in his hometown where he's not able to perform any miracles. The enemy seems to have successfully shut him down by whispering to the minds of those who live there, he's just a carpenter. He's not the son of God. And the lack of faith limits his power. I sometimes wonder how much my lack of faith or acting on the faith I have limits the power of God in my life. So Jesus makes a counteroffensive and he summons his army. Twelve teenage boys. That's his army. He's been recruiting them, and he empowers them to cast out unclean spirits, and he sends them out on their own to be like him because he knew they could do it. And needless to say, they kicked butt. 
The enemy is alerted and reports to their high command, or, or shall we say their low command. Legions of demons who have been cast out must have all been reporting the same thing to their master. The Son of God is here, and he's not alone. He's formed an army of teenage boys. He's not just a simple carpenter. We've been duped. Alert Herod Antipas. He's been doing our bidding just like his father before him. So this passage we are studying is sort of like a speed bump in this action-packed gospel of Mark. He starts out, King Herod heard about it. Heard about what? Heard about the disciples went out. Because Jesus' name had become well known. And then some said John the Baptist has been raised. So remember, Jesus didn't start his ministry until after John the Baptist was put in jail, was put in prison. John was sort of the forward scout. And as often can happen in battle, the forward scout sometimes doesn't make it. So he had to sit out the whole battle in prison getting snippets of what's happening from his disciples. Must have been frustrating. Mark 6.16, it says, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded had been raised. And so here comes the speed bump in the gospel in the form of a flashback, which is kind of classic of Mark in the way he writes. He's cruising along telling this fantastic story, and then he mentions Herod, John, the one I beheaded. Mark thinks, oh, oh, I, I need to update you. <laughs> Something had happened earlier on, but I have to tell you about it now. And he tells us this flashback. And so we hear the explanation of the execution of John the Baptist. The entire gospel of Mark talks about Jesus, either in what he was doing or what he was saying. Every chapter in Mark talks about Jesus. Every section within every chapter talks about Jesus, except this section, which is yet again another classic slip-up I make. Is when Jesus, when Jesus, actually Steve, he's not Jesus. Steve says, would you mind speaking on this passage? And my ego always runs before me. Sure, I can speak on any passage. And then I open it up and go, oh, man, I want to talk about the execution of John. Give me something better than that. Too late. I already committed to it. I didn't want to talk about this passage. And I prayed. And then the Lord showed me, even this section is all about Jesus. To see this, we need to look at the larger historical context into which God enters history through his son. So in the same way Denzel Washington's character walks into the office of the corrupt, evil bad guys, God parachutes in behind enemy lines into a dangerous situation. In fact, the most dangerous situation he could have possibly shown up in. This is how God picks a fight. This is the big reveal. There have been ruling dynasties throughout history. The longest-running one is the Japanese dynasty, the Emoto family. Back before Christ was born, they were in charge. Some of these dynasties have been decent. Others varied in degrees of ineptitude or oppression. While others have been outright immoral and corrupt and degenerate. What's that old saying? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So Mark starts out, King Herod heard about it. Now, technically, we could correct Mark here. Because Herod was not a king. Herod Antipas was a tetrarch. A tetrarch is, and we read about this also in Matthew, a tetrarch can mean one of four people ruling together 
Ora can mean one who is ruling a fourth of a region. Antipas was not allowed by the Roman authorities to refer to himself as a king. He did find ways to do so in covert fashion, like when he tells Salome he, should give, he would give up half of his kingdom. But he doesn't have a kingdom. He has a region. That's all he has. So why did Mark refer to him as a king? Well, if you ever go to pick up your food order at Spizikos, like we do often, every time I go in there, the guy who sees me says, Hey, boss, how you doing? He always calls me boss. So I call him chief. I don't know what's going on here. I didn't even know he worked for me, but that's what he always calls me. (laughs) He's just being deferential. He's respecting me. That's what he does. And that's what Mark was doing. He was calling him King Herod. Mark was doing what everyone else did in that region, calling Herod a king. You know why? It was a safe thing to do. Because if you know anything about the Herods, uh, they were pretty ruthless people. So as a side note here, I'm thinking about Herod Antipas' reaction when he found out later on that they were referring to Jesus as king of the Jews. Surely Antipas thought of himself as the king of the Jews, even though he's not allowed to utter such a thought. To be honest, that never occurred to me before the past week. I'm the king of the Jews. I'm not allowed to say it, but they're calling him the king of the Jews. I have to get rid of this guy. So let's look at the Herods or the Herodian dynasty. As far as those who had ruled over the nation of Israel, most historians will agree that the Herod dynasty sits at the very top of the list of the most corrupt and evil ruling families. When God picks a fight, he enters during that time of the most corrupt, intimidating, nasty, and powerful dynasties. There's a lot of other times he could have come in. It would have been a whole lot easier. But he came in when power is at its highest. He drops in right under their nose. He goes about building an army within the enemy's camp. He tries to keep everything hush-hush. He keeps telling those he healed, don't tell anybody. However, he could only keep a lid on his operation for so long. SEAL teams know they must get in quick, for they usually have a short window of opportunity before they're discovered, and then they get out. So you notice Jesus' ministry was only three years. And in the context of history, that's like 10 seconds. Very short. And yet... He accomplished his mission, didn't he? Remember back in Mark 3.27 where Jesus responds to the accusation he was of the devil. He says, he says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Jesus was revealing his battle strategy. He came in to tie up the strong man. So let's have a quick review of the Herods. I don't want to spend too much time on them, but it's part of the context. So we have the founder of the dynasty, Herod the Great. The Herod we're dealing with here is a son, Herod Antipas, one of several sons. But Herod the Great was the founder. We might also remember something kind of unique about this first Herod. He was the only person in the world who actually accidentally found out about both the time and of the birth of the Messiah, which he gleaned from the wise men, and the location of the birth, which he learned from the Pharisees. No one else knew this except him. And of course, it doesn't look like he did the right thing, does it? Because <laughs> what's he try to do? He hears about this future king, and that's a threat to him. So he tries to kill him. And as we were singing those praise songs, 
Nothing can stand against him. I mean, the whole, that's why I said I have nothing else, because pretty much this whole sermon, we just sang most of it, okay? So he tries to kill him, and he fails. He also saw two of his older sons as threats to his throne. So he has them executed. What a nice family guy this man is. Actually, he's beyond ruthless and beyond brutal. And yet it was Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus was also the person who refurbished the second temple. Kind of ironic, isn't it? You made the way for the king, and then you're trying to kill him. But it's not really actually ironic. So let's look and listen. God even uses the enemy to do his bidding. He's not afraid of the enemy. He gets the enemy to do what he wants. He wanted the temple to be finished, complete and refurbished, before Jesus arrived. And he used Herod the Great to do so. Listen, the very evil that seems to be oppressing you, frustrating you, defeating you, God can and will use that evil to refurbish you. Herod the Great had a number of sons, among whom were Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. They were stepbrothers. They had a niece named Herodias, who was the daughter of yet another stepbrother, Aristobulus, whom Herod had killed. She was like the rest of her family, the other Herods. Herodias is the feminine form for the word hero, much like we have the English word heroine as a female hero. Some versions of the Herod Antipas marriage suggest he abducted the poor girl, while others suggest that she was wooed away, while others suggest Philip released her to his brother who was another tetrarch like him, maybe he was afraid of, of Antipas. All those stories are sort of trying to protect her virtue. Poor little Herodias being tossed around like some possession, like some object. First given to Philip, then to Antipas, abducts her. Poor girl, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think she was a poor, poor girl. Remember, she was a Herod too, just like one of her family. Let's not overlook her behavior. Why did she hold a grudge against John? If she was so virtuous, why didn't she encourage John to keep speaking so Antipas might return her to her rightful husband? She doesn't do that. She wanted to kill John, but the best she could do is get him locked up, put in jail. Yet she continues scheming. She must have taught her daughter, Salome, her skills to overpower a man. She taught her how to dance. Herodias was basically a princess of the Herodian dynasty, the daughter of Aristobulus, a son of Herod the Great. When Herod the Great felt his rule threatened, he reacted by eliminating potential competition. And this made Herodias an orphan when she was sent off after he eliminated Aristobulus, sent off to be the wife of Herod, Philip, her step-uncle. They have a child named Salome after her aunt, Salome. This theory about Herodias being abducted by her uncle, Herod Antipas, however, runs counter to extra-biblical historical documents, such as Josephus. Josephus says, Herodias took it upon herself to confound the laws of our country and divorced herself from her husband while he was still alive and was married to Herod Antipas. So I think, and again, I know I'm going a little outside Scripture here, so take this for what it is. It's just my opinion. It's not a fact. But I think Herodias 
seduced Antipas during his visit by performing a dance she knew. Then she divorced Philip and married Antipas. And then later she taught her daughter Salome the same dance she herself performed for Antipas years earlier. I would suggest she noticed Antipas looking at her daughter, his own grandniece, in a wrong way. The scheme was hatched. Harry would be far more impressed with the dance by Salome than by Herodias herself. He's seen it before. Herodias trained her own daughter to be like one of the family, a Herod through and through. And she succeeds by getting John's head on a platter. Hell hath no fury like a Herod who's been scorned. So John paid the price for Herod, Antipas, and Herodias' adultery. John died in combat, preparing a way for the Lord. But don't worry, though. If you read some more history, you'll find out Antipas paid for his adultery not long after. He ends up getting banished to Gaul, which is another story for another time. So we see Herod Antipas is afraid of John. Not enough, though, to turn from his sin. He was likely thinking, if I protect John, that will somehow be points for me. I'll be redeemed. We still sort of see this behavior today, don't we, by certain scoundrels in power. If a religious authority comes in, they treat him with deference, and maybe I'll get some points by being nice to the religious people. Still goes on today. Herod, however, chose to keep sinning. He found John interesting, but also perplexing or confusing, it says. He certainly found the words of truth of John like a refreshment to his soul. Except, of course, when John held Herod accountable for his very public sin. Herod became perplexed, but he chose to keep on sinning. I remember years ago reading about a pastor talking about our ability to make choices to not sin. And he talked about a man who came to him for help, and this man said, Pastor, I have a real problem with vulgar language. I can't seem to stop using bad language a day in and day out. I just can't stop cursing. And the pastor said, I've never heard you use a foul word. And the guy says, well, not around you, pastor. And the pastor said, oh, so you do have a choice. We always have a choice. Have you ever noticed sometimes when you read a certain passage of, of Scripture that you sort of start to cringe and you pick up your pace of reading to get on to something else? <laughs> Maybe that's just me that does that. I don't know. So we return to the story. Herod gets himself all excited or perhaps maybe too much to drink, makes a vow in front of all the important people. He doesn't want to appear weak in front of them. Although in reality, he's already shown his weakness. So while afraid of John, he was more afraid of tarnishing his reputation as one to be feared. It was this Herod Antipas that both John and Jesus met their fate. So let's note, it was in the midst of the most evil dynasty God entered history. He goes up against evil when it's at its strongest. In the same way, God places us in the middle of a corrupt and difficult time. He does the same thing to us. He places us in challenging situations. Fortunately, he never challenges us past our ability to respond, to be used by him. So some of you you might be faced with your own Herods right now. One person's Herod might seem like someone else, more like a mailroom clerk. Nothing to be concerned with or upset about. So don't be like me when listening to someone else's personal problem and start to be dismissive or start to be internally judgmental. Look, that's the challenge they face and that they can barely handle. So be supportive 
and be encouraging. See, if we compare the missions of John and Jesus, there are some similarities, but there are some key differences. John condemned Herod. Jesus never mentions Herod. Jesus never pointed to John, but John did point to Jesus. Remember in Mark 1.7, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John's mission was clear. He called people to repentance to prepare a way for the Lord by passing judgment. Jesus' mission was also clear, not to judge, but to save the world from judgment, to permanently remove sin and reconcile people to his Father. We only need to go over to the book of John in a couple places. In John 3, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then in John 8, You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. John 12, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So we have at least three scriptures clearly indicating Jesus did not come to judge. There's another piece of evidence he didn't come to judge. Because if he did, we wouldn't be here. He would have crucified every human being on the planet. He said he came for some other reason. If we go to, while we're in John for a few seconds, let's go to John 9, 39. We read, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will be blind. You said several times you didn't come to judge. Now you say, For judgment I came into the world. Jesus, make up your mind here. Which one is it? Did you come to judge or to save? I've often said that frequently in Scripture, prepositions, these little small words, can make all the difference. Are you living for the Lord or are you living in the Lord? Huge difference. The first word in John 9.39 is the word for, which is translated from the Greek word eis, E-I-S, which can also be translated to, unto, or into, Ice indicates the point or place or time reached. The word ice appears in the Bible over 1,600 times. 1,066 of those times is translated to, into, or toward, instead of for. So we could read a more literal translation of John 9.39 might be something like this. I came here to be judged. I came here for judgment. I'm turning myself in. He came to be judged to save people from their sins. Well, who in their wrong mind is going to judge the Son of God? The Pharisees and Antipas. That's who. They're going to put the Son of God to death. It's that spirit of evil. That spirit of evil that had a hold of the Herods and the Pharisees is still around today, as we witnessed in our community recently that we prayed about. Evil inflicts pain. Look, we can judge and condemn the gunmen and be like John, or we can be like Jesus and pray for this man and for his pain and for the people that he passes pain on to, for the families of those whom he injured and killed. So let's return to the scene in the Equalizer where Robert McCall turns around and faces the five tough guys. 
They laugh at him. They mock him. They dismiss him. No way that he could ever defeat them. So he goes to the door, appearing to leave, and he locks the door. So they can't get out. Then he turns around. I'm not going to describe the scene because we have young ones, but about 30 seconds later, no one's laughing. It's kind of hard to laugh when you're not breathing. So they underestimated him. They didn't think he could pull it off. They thought he was just a passionate guy who worked at Home Depot. Maybe he was just a a frustrated carpenter. They laughed at Jesus. Three days later, nobody's laughing anymore. Many were rejoicing, but they're not laughing at him. People might laugh at you too, especially if you're in Christ. And that's okay. You're getting the same benefit and privilege the Lord had. Let them laugh and pray for them. They are underestimating who you are in Christ. Let us not also underestimate who we are in Christ. We can pray for the Herods in our life just as Jesus did. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. In fact, let's do that now. Let's bow your heads. And as we close our eyes, I want you to begin to think about your own Herods, the people or situations or memories that seem to be holding you back or making fun of you or frustrate you or put you down or give you shame or who just won't accept you. Think about those who've hurt you, brought pain into your life. Maybe your own Herod is you, judging yourself, holding yourself back, being brutal to yourself for not performing as well as you think you should. In your mind, I want you to picture that person or situation or memory and listen to what was said. And notice how that makes you feel. And notice where those feelings are occurring in your body. And now in your mind, look at that person or situation right in the eyes and say, even though I still feel hurt by you. I completely forgive you. And I deeply and profoundly forgive and accept myself. Look them right in the eyes and say, even though I still feel hurt by you, I completely forgive you. And I deeply and profoundly forgive and accept myself. And as you forgive that offense against you, Notice the image of that person begins to change as it fills with the light, the light of your, of your love that God has poured out into your heart. Notice the sounds of that situation begin to grow quiet until there's silence and peace. Notice where the pain in your body was located and how even your body begins to relax as you love and forgive the injury to your soul. It's okay now. Love overwhelms sin. Love heals the pain. Love quiets the soul until you are now at peace with it. And that is good for you to be at peace, to truly possess the peace that already exists 
in your heart because God gave it to you. And yet it still passes your understanding. So as we draw to a close, continue to be still. There will be no final music, just the song that is playing in your heart. And in a little bit, when you're ready, you can open your eyes and quietly slip out and join the fellowship with the others. But before we do that, let me just give a blessing to to the meal that we're about to partake. Father, we thank you that you have provided everything that we need. We thank you for this food that has been prepared, and we pray that you'll bless that food to our health and us to your service. So when you're ready, you can open your eyes and quietly slip out. I will remain here with you until you're ready. I will remain to talk with you if you need to talk or to ask questions. And now may the peace of God guard your heart. May the wisdom of God renew your mind, and may the power of God heal your body. Amen and amen.